the special episode of Interpreting India. I'm your host, Srinath Raghavan. And today, we are discussing the increasingly fraught relationship between China and India. 2022 has been a year of geopolitical conflict and tensions. If we were expecting a quieter end to the year, then apparently we were mistaken. On 9th December, Chinese and Indian troops had a face-off along the line of actual control in the Tawang sector of Arunachal Pradesh. While we don't have many details yet, it appears that a few hundred soldiers were involved in a physical scuffle and some 30 to 40 on both sides sustained injuries. The Indian Defence Minister, Mr. Rajnath Singh, told the parliament that the Chinese People's Liberation Army troops had tried to transgress the LAC in this area and were prevented from doing so. Two days after this incident, the local commanders of the Indian Army and the PLA met to discuss the issue, though it is unclear what, if anything, has been agreed upon to restore tranquility. The relations between India and China have been in deep freeze since May 2020, when troops of both sides had clashed along the LAC in Ladakh. The two sides have since enhanced their military deployment and upgraded their logistical infrastructure along the line of actual control. Arunachal Pradesh has several points where the two sides have different perceptions of where the line of actual control runs, and both sides patrol up to the line that they claim. With reference to the recent standoff, the Indian Ministry of Defense has noted that this has been the case in the Tawang sector since 2006. How do we understand China's posture and actions along the LAC in recent years? Is a purely bilateral framework adequate to grasp Beijing's motivations? Or are larger considerations at work? And what are India's options in dealing with Chinese activism along the line of actual control? Joining me today to discuss this topic is Ambassador Vijay Gokhale. Ambassador Gokhale is a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie India. He retired from the Indian Foreign Service in January 2020 after a diplomatic career spanning 39 years. He has served both as the Foreign Secretary of India and as India's ambassador to China. Indeed, he is one of our foremost experts on China and on the disputed boundary. Ambassador Gokhale is the author of three books, Tiananmen Square, The Making of a Protest, The Long Game, How the Chinese Negotiate with India, and most recently, After Tiananmen, The Rise of China. In an interesting coincidence, just as the news of the recent face-off hit the headlines a couple of days ago, Carnegie India published an important paper by Ambassador Gokhale titled, A Historical Evolution of China's India Policy, Lessons for India-China Relations. While much has been written about India-China relations, most of this tends to be from the perspective of India. We have few assessments of how Beijing has seen India and has sought to deal with it. You can access this excellent paper on our website, and we will be talking about the longer arc of China's policy towards India, which Ambassador Gokhale has traced in the paper. Ambassador Gokhale, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Srinath. Uh, sir, I want to begin really with uh, the headlines of the moment. Really, uh, I know that you know it's it's difficult to make inferences based on the limited amount of information that is available in the public domain. Uh, but you have not only studied this issue very extensively, but have dealt with it through the course of your diplomatic career at so many different levels. So I would really like to sort of get your uh, perspectives on not so much on what might have happened uh, along the line of actual control in Tawang, the incident that was reported from 9th of December, uh, but also about 
the importance of that particular sector because uh, over the last couple of years i think a lot of our attention has been engaged on the ladakh sector uh, particularly in the aftermath of the galwan crisis of 2020 we have seen you know considerable amounts of uh, military deployment and focus on that particular region but arunachal pradesh has historically been one of the more troubled sort of areas between india and china so i would just like your reflections to begin with on uh, how you read what is currently playing out on the ground yeah thank you shrinath uh, i followed the developments that have taken place since the 9th of december quite carefully uh, particularly whatever has been reported in the media now i think it is important to understand that the line of actual control which runs all the way from the union territory of ladakh in the northwest to the indian state of arunachal pradesh in the southeast has never been defined as a common line between the two countries in other words each side has its own perception of the line of actual control and what we have seen from the year 2008 onwards are steady attempts by the chinese to push against this line of actual control with a view to reaching the points along the line which they state are on the line of actual control so particularly in 2013 and from 2013 onwards there has been a series of escalating incidents uh, and the in the western sector we saw the last such incident at dalwan this does not mean however that there are no differences on the lac perception in the other two sectors namely the middle sector which covers the states of himachal pradesh uttarakhand and sikkim and the eastern sector which covers the state of himachal pradesh uh excuse me arunachal pradesh now in the case of arunachal pradesh shrinath it is important to understand one fact the macmahon line which both sides agree is the line of actual control in that sector uh, there is a difference of opinion as to the precise alignment of this line as far as india is concerned the macmahon line is the line which runs along the highest watershed of the himalayas in arunachal pradesh for the chinese however the macmahon line is the line that was drawn on the map by british foreign secretary henry macmahon and not necessarily running along the highest ridge line but in a literal interpretation of where that line lies on the map and as a result of this there are some areas along the border in arunachal pradesh where there is a significant difference in the alignment of the line of actual control my sense is that the current uh, impasse at yangste is one of those areas where the alignment differs and therefore we have seen a chinese attempt to push into this region with a view to reaching its own alignment and we have seen a push back from the indian side but before i conclude shrinath i need to make one further point and that is that ever since the current leader has taken over in china he has been emphasizing the importance of military training for troops in preparation by getting near combat training in other words training in near combat conditions and particularly after 2020 orders to this effect have been issued by president xi jinping this has resulted in troops along our border the chinese troops along our border trying to press forward 
and meeting resistance or a counter response from the Indian side. And therefore, you saw what happened in Galwan. And now we are hearing of what happened in Yangtze. Sure, sir. And Tawang also seems to be politically an important um, sort of sensitive area as far as the you know, boundary dispute between India and China goes. I mean, the Chinese have overtly laid claim uh, to that particular area, but it is an area which I don't think uh, any Indian government can ever sort of uh, concede will be even remotely sort of plausible to give it away to the Chinese because we have political representation with Tawang. And also, you know, when I was in the army visiting Tawang, I used to be struck by the fact that, you know, local school children would speak Hindi. So Tawang is highly integrated into India. So I'm just wondering, you know, what is the political salience of this particular issue or is it just an operational question uh, at play out here? For the Chinese, I think there is a deep political significance. And that significance lies in the fact that the sixth Dalai Lama, was supposedly born in Tawang. Now, subsequently, the Chinese narrative is that uh, since the sixth Dalai Lama was born in Tawang, and because on and off Tibetan monasteries exercise their control, ecclesiastically speaking, over this region, that therefore Tawang is a part of Tibet and therefore a part of the People's Republic of China. Uh, this is not necessarily supported by the available documentation, but this is the Chinese claim. And therefore, uh, even in 1960, when Premier Chow Enlai visited India in an attempt to find a solution to the boundary question, the one particular place he mentioned in the eastern sector was Tawang. That should indicate to us how significant this particular town or area is in the Chinese psyche in terms of the boundary. Right. Now, one of the very important points that you make in your recently published Carnegie paper, uh, and I'd urge all our listeners to uh, go to the website and access the paper there, uh, is the importance of trying to understand China's policy towards India in the longer sort of historical arc. Uh, but one of the main arguments that you advance there is that if we really want to understand how China looks upon India and has dealt with it over several decades now. In many ways, we have to understand that China looks at India within a larger geopolitical or a geostrategic framework. And that if we are not able to understand that particular framework, uh, we will not be able to reconstruct what Chinese, uh, what motivates China's policy towards India, uh, whether in the past or in the present and future. So maybe could you just lay out what the broad argument is and, and then we can go through some of the very interesting arguments, uh, smaller arguments that you make there. Yeah, thank you. Srinath, uh, if you look at the way in which China has conducted relations with India, in terms of what their leaders have said about India-China relations or what their scholars have said about India-China relations, then it becomes quite clear from the writings that are available with us that they have looked at India through the lens of their own relations with other great powers. And historically from 1949, they have claimed that only two other countries have great power status like them. One is the Soviet Union and its successor state, the Russian Federation, and the other is the United States of America. And essentially, Chinese foreign policy from Mao Zedong to Xi Jinping has been uh, crafted within this triangular balance of great power relations. In this triangular balance, India is not in the Chinese mind a separate pole. It is an adjunct power, a power that becomes of concern to the Chinese side when 
by association with another great power, it appears to threaten Chinese interest. And therefore, as a result of this perception about India, the Chinese judge India's actions based on whether they help China's cause and objectives or they hinder China's cause and objectives. Now, China's objectives, of course, are different from Mao to Xi. That's obvious because China's comprehensive national strength has also grown substantially. But the way in which they judge India's actions have remained more or less consistent because they place India within the framework of this triangular great power relationship and look upon India as an adjunct power that either tilts towards the Soviet Union or tilts towards the United States. And the whole objective of the Chinese side is to ensure that India remains as neutral as possible so that its capacity to harm China's strategic objectives is minimized. Sure. And uh, you divide up the sort of longer arc of uh, India-China relations in the post-colonial period, uh, primarily into three broad phases. And the first phase is really, you know, practically covers the period from 1949 to 1960 or thereabouts, where you say that China's primary sort of uh, focus there was with the United States of America, uh, and that India then comes to be seen uh, within that particular view. And it seems to me that just to link up uh, the history and the present, uh, that Tawang itself is an interesting example of that particular dynamic, though, uh, you know, you don't use it as an example as such in your book. Uh, because, you know, when Indian sort of administration was being extended throughout this area, you know, the British did not have administrative sort of posts, etc. When Indian administration was first extended into this area in 1951, when, uh, you know, permanent sort of uh, establishments were set up, uh, the Chinese actually never responded at all. They neither protested nor made any of these claims, all of which were subsequently made. Uh, but at that point of time, they were not. And it seems to me that that was partly because of their ongoing conflict with the United States in the context of the Korean War and, and the role that they perceived of India. Yes, well, that's partly the, the, the answer, Srinath. But it also is a fact that the, China, the new Chinese authorities, the People's Republic of China, really had no in-depth knowledge of the India-Tibet boundary. And it took them a few years. And by going through the records of the Tibetan state and the Dalai Lama's office to realize that there was a significant difference in the perceptions of the two sides on the alignment of the boundary. Until that uh, understanding was gained, the Chinese therefore dissimulated. Uh, and in some cases, it was sheer ignorance as a result of which they did not protest or did not state their claims. Nonetheless, as soon as they became aware that there were Tibetan claims, which they could also uh, automatically buy into, uh, we therefore see uh, thereafter uh, repeated references to the uh, Eastern sector and uh, to Tawang in particular. Now, of course, the, the, if you, the, one of the big concerns in the 1950s, and that concern again is reflected today, is the possibility of American involvement in this region uh, as part of their containment of China's strategy. Uh, to my mind, this is more imagined or contrived than uh, real. But of course, a lot of diplomacy and national security is on the basis of perception and not necessarily the basis of facts. And because the southwestern border of China is so vulnerable as a result of the fact that even 60 years after they have occupied Tibet, the Dalai Lama continues to be a revered figure, they continue to remain concerned about the possibility that a third party 
will utilize this vulnerability uh, to gain advantage from the Chinese. So in a sense, there is not only the boundary question, but also again, because India is placed in the framework of this uh, great power balance of power game, there is also the question of how and who is going to use India in order to hurt China. When these two come together, you begin to understand why the Chinese react uh, in what I would call a rather paranoid fashion when it comes to their southwestern border. Sure. That's a very interesting argument because, uh, you know, in India, we have this perception, not just amongst, I think, scholars and uh, historians, but also among ordinary people that, uh, in a sense, non-alignment or the pursuit of strategic autonomy has somehow been inherent to India's engagement with the world. But uh, you are suggesting that the Chinese have never really bought into that particular picture. Well, Mao was very clear, very specific about this. He, in fact, in 1949 said there is no third road. You either lean to the side of socialism, which is the Soviet Union, or you lean to the side of imperialism, which is the United States and the West. And therefore, in his mind, non-alignment might have sounded good in theory, but in practice, India, he felt, was aligned, at least in the early parts, the, uh, until the mid-1950s, very clearly with the United States and Great Britain and against the Soviet Union. Uh, non-alignment has never been uh, a credo that the Chinese have ever uh, uh, sort of bought into simply because they play a classic balance of power game. And in a classic balance of power game, whether you are a pole or you are an adjunct power, you play one side or the other. You, you cannot remain neutral in this game. And therefore, it's a concept they cannot wrap their heads around. And uh, the second sort of period into which you divide uh, this longer history is uh, the period between 1960 and the end of the Cold War. When you say that in some ways, the main concern for China geopolitically was the former Soviet Union, uh, which was at one point, especially in the first phase, a very close ally of China. Uh, but in this uh, interim period of about close to 30 years, between 1960 and 1990 or thereabouts, uh, the Soviet Union starts to loom very large in China's geopolitical concerns. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what changes and how does India's role accordingly then change as far as the Chinese are concerned? So I think after the 1962 conflict, the relations between India and China went into the deep freeze for many years, largely because China itself was undergoing a lot of internal problems as a result of the Cultural Revolution but also because India was not willing to engage with China after the 1962 conflict. Uh, and therefore, until the late 1960s, there was no serious effort by either side to rebuild that relationship. However, from 1969 onwards, when the Sino-Soviet split became public, uh, and China grew anxious about a possible Soviet attempt to use force against it, uh, the efforts by the Indian side to build relations with the Soviet Union were again seen by China purely from the balance of power perspective, rather than from the Indian perspective. So far as India was concerned, we were facing a crisis of our own in South Asia, the Bangladesh crisis of which you have written so brilliantly about. Uh, and therefore, our concern was about balancing the United States which was increasingly tilting towards Pakistan. It made sense, therefore, for India to reach out to the other superpower, the Soviet Union. But from China's perspective, this reaching out 
magnified the Soviet threat. It was concerned that the Soviets were not only aligned along their entire northern and northwestern border, but would now have an ally, at least in their minds, we were an ally along the entire southwestern border. And therefore, it was a virtual surrounding of China on land by either the Soviet Union or its allies and partners. As a result of this sense of concern or fear or paranoia, whatever you might call it, uh, China was uh, made every effort after 1975 to try to dilute the Indo-Soviet relationship. And uh, one of the main uh, points I make in my paper is that when a second offer was made by the Chinese side to resolve the boundary issue in 1980, the first being by Chow Enla in 1960, it was not driven by bilateral considerations. It was essentially driven by expectation that they would be able to use this to wean us away from the Soviet Union and thereby dilute the threat. And I conclude this particular section by saying that once the Soviet threat appeared to diminish in 1985, after Gorbachev became the Soviet leader and indicated his desire to improve relations with China, we also see a consequent waning of enthusiasm on the Chinese side to settle the boundary question. And it is around this time, according to writings by many of the Indian diplomats involved at that time, in particular Ambassador Shamsaran, that there is also a change that we notice about Chinese claims on the boundary and the shift in position when the Chinese now begin to say that it is the Eastern sector which is the area of primary dispute and not the Western sector. And, and the Eastern sector is, of course, Arunachal Pradesh, which is the location of the current standoff. Well. That's right. Right. And, and um, But by the end of uh, the 1980s, both China and India are, in effect, you know, grappling with the new world. Um, the you know communist bloc in Eastern Europe has crumbled. Uh, no one knows that the Soviet Union is going to collapse, but it's definitely a much weakened superpower uh, in as much as they're embroiled in its own problems with Afghanistan, etc. So uh, w what is shaping China's attitudes towards not just India, but the rest of the world? And, and then within that framework, where does India come in? I think the real window of opportunity to build that relationship was between 1988 and 1998 because the end of the Cold War uh, brought enormous challenges both to India and to China in terms of our foreign policies. After all, we had only ever been existing as independent nations in the Cold War period. And now we were faced with the unipolar world where there was only one power and that was the United States of America. Therefore, it made sense for each of these two countries to improve relations with the other so that at least uh, collectively, there could be an effort to build a world order in which there might be some balance to the United States. This is therefore the period when both China and India start talking of a new international political and economic order. And China starts talking of an Asian century where India and China will march together to ensure common prosperity. Tragically, however, what happened was that during this period, the attention of both India and China turned westward because uh, the economic benefits could only come from the West. And both India and China needed technology, it needed capital, it needed talent to grow the economy. So in a sense, while it made 
larger strategic sense for India and China to align their foreign policies. Uh, or in practical terms, they seem to fall off each other's radar at that time, since both pursued relations or prioritized relations with the West. And in that sense, this in this period, all we could achieve and did achieve was peace and tranquility in the border areas. And I do not wish to minimize the importance of what was achieved. It bought a quarter century of relative tranquility and peace to both sides, allowed both of us to focus both on domestic issues and on the, on the economic uh, uh, problems. Uh, and to a certain extent, the rise of both China and India was because, uh, at least partly because, of the peace that prevailed. Uh, unfortunately, after the year 2000, not only was China's economic growth uh, much faster, but also the world returned much more to a balance of power game than it had in 1990 because Russia was back under President Putin uh, and, the, and China was more confident because of its economic growth. And therefore, uh, once the triangular relationship uh, came back into existence, uh, the importance of India again uh, relatively declined. And therefore, my own hypothesis is that we see a worsening uh, of India-China relations after 2005 as China becomes more confident in the new balance of power that has emerged in the 21st century. Sure. Uh, and then the period just before 2005, 2003 and four, you do see some degree of forward movement, particularly on the sort of contested boundary question. Uh, because uh, that's the time when Prime Minister Vajpayee visits um, Beijing and the Chinese, you know, suggest that they should think about a kind of a political settlement. And I think that's the first time that India actually sort of agrees that we will take an, you know, overall approach and come up with a political, uh, this thing, a process is started with uh, politically appointed special representatives to lead both sides' negotiation. And uh, even a sort of a, a second stage agreement is signed uh, in 2004 on the political parameters that would govern an eventual settlement. So there does seem to have been an, a, a bit of a moment of a flickering hope, but that gets extinguished rather quickly. And I was wondering why. You must realize that the year 2003 was the year when Chiang Zemin was still the president of China. And uh, for him, uh, since he was president from 1989 until 2003, this was a period when he uh, uh, felt it was important that relations with India be normalized. Uh, it was also the time when China-Russia so relations were just beginning to gain traction, uh, the strategic partnership. And, where, and when China-US relations were still relatively stable, because China had successfully convinced the Americans to allow them into the WTO, and the Americans still believed they could convert China into a responsible stakeholder. So the international situation was still conducive to uh, China trying to better its relations with other neighbors. Uh, after 2005, as tensions with the United States started to grow in the second Bush administration, uh, and as they saw India perceptibly moving closer to the United States as a result of the 1-2-3 deal, uh, much of that sense uh, of uh, expectation that they could resolve issues with India to their advantage uh, began to dissolve. And by then, of course, China had new leaders. It had President Hu Jintao and Premier Wen Jiabao. And both of them were much more confident that China's rise was now inevitable. 
And therefore, their foreign policy itself was shifting away from the Deng Xiaoping maxim of hide your capabilities and bide your time to a more assertive foreign policy, which ultimately manifested itself under President Xi Jinping. Sure. And how important was the global financial crisis of 2008 in this kind of Chinese calculus of how their own rise was playing out? You mentioned, you talk about a little bit in your latest book uh, after Tiananmen uh, about this particular period. Well, there's no doubt now that the global financial crisis was seen by China as confirmation of their belief that the United States and the West were in a slow decline and that the rise of China was now inevitable. Uh, particularly the, the fact that they became the global engine of economic growth and in a sense uh, rescued the world from a worse recession than we had to go through was something which only reinforced their own belief about the superiority of their system, not just about their administration and policies, but about the communist system. And therefore, uh, in a sense, China came out of the global financial crisis not only confident about its own abilities, but more confident about its role and place in the future world. And uh, you therefore see from 2010 onwards a change in posture with the United States a much more uh, uh, assertive uh, behavior uh, with the United States itself, a much more aggressive approach towards the American allies in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean, and a much more confident China dealing with its neighbors, which include us, of course. Sure. And this is also the time when the United States starts talking more seriously about an Indo-Pacific kind of an approach. Uh, 2011, uh, with you know, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's uh, famous sort of speech. Uh, and and uh, there is a sense now that, you know, China is kind of in some ways, its actions are also having a little bit of a pushback from others. I mean, you know, while the Chinese may believe that, you know, they are relatively stronger in a position to sort of assert their priorities and prerogatives. Uh, others are not willing to really play ball and go along with what China wants either. Yes, yeah, so I think the, uh, the immediate aftermath of the uh, end of the global financial crisis around 2010 was an aha moment for both sides. Uh, for the United States, it was a recognition that China was not, unfortunately, going to become the sort of stakeholder that they had hoped in a Western-led liberal order. But for China equally, there was the realization that however much they developed, however big a GDP they had, however much they assisted the United States, they would never be invited to the top table as an equal stakeholder. It would always be a Western-led order in which China might be tolerated, but would never be given decision-making powers. Now, as a result of this, of course, what you saw was a changing perception simultaneously in Beijing and Washington about the other side. This process, of course, took the whole of the second decade of this century because uh, we had begun with admiration for the Chinese with the way in which the Chinese had handled the global financial crisis and to a certain extent even gratitude that they had been able to pull the world out of it. And from that point on, there was a re-evaluation which eventually culminated in the Trump administration's description of China as a strategic rival uh, and a competitor. And in Xi Jinping's statements, not necessarily in public, that the United States is an existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party. So this was a journey of over 10 years. 
and it is a journey which uh, has in a sense uh, culminated in the post covid period with a clear recognition on both sides that the other is the pacing challenge the united states of course has described china as the pacing challenge but if you were to ask the chinese side that phrase would equally apply to their view of the united states right and throughout the past decade this particular uh, geopolitical sort of framework within which china has been conducting uh, its foreign policy has clearly had an impact on relations with india because you know these have had somewhat of a jagged trajectory uh, I, I, you know uh, i think it's fair to say that from the indian side certainly from 2014 there has been a lot of effort to diplomatically reach out to the chinese uh, including at very sort of uh, important summit level meetings and so on uh, but the chinese do not seem to have responded very positively to it at least as far as the line of actual control and what seems to be happening on the ground is concerned right there is clearly a, a discrepancy between what the chinese seem to be willing to consider uh, at the higher political levels vis-a-vis what their actions on the ground are yes uh, shrinath that's a very uh, appropriate uh, description of the situation so i can only conclude therefore that uh, while we were hoping that there would be a bilateral uh, relationship with china through the second decade of this century the chinese would continue to look at india only from the prism of our relations with the united states and as a result despite every effort by the government of india to uh, improve that relationship through various means and one of them was high level summits there was no corresponding response from the chinese side in fact on the chinese side there was a series of escalating incidents and those were not limited simply to the line of actual control this was also the period when they actively blocked india's membership of the nuclear suppliers group for example when they repeatedly blocked indian efforts to list terrorists in the 1267 sanctions committee where they were unwilling to publicly endorse india's aspirations uh, in the united nations security council as a mentis expanded and also seemed to be dismissive of india's concerns on some of the uh, very sophisticated technology they were supplying to pakistan as well as the fact that the china pakistan economic corridor that runs through pakistan occupied jammu and kashmir actually changes the status quo in an area that india has claimed uh to that extent chinese actions therefore eroded the feeling of trust that indians had towards china and the 2020 galwan incident to my mind has uh, put a final nail in that coffin uh, that is why in my paper i say that the galwan incident was different from anything else because the strategic ambiguity that ambiguous view that most people had about india has more or less disappeared and i would say the vast majority have developed a certain amount of strategic clarity vis-a-vis china i'm not saying that there are still not people who believe that uh, we need to take a different approach but i do not think in the current environment uh, they would be able to voice their opinions and even if they did voice those opinions these would be treated as fringe opinions sure and it's also reasonably clear now that you know india's kind of um, orientation towards the west i don't think alignment is the right word uh, is is pretty you know clearly laid out uh, i think it, it definitely meets india's requirements in terms of what its own interests and equities are concerned in the region uh, and i think that 
course is now pretty well set so given that then uh, i suppose the conclusion to be drawn is that in some ways we should expect more uh, you know lower level friction and perhaps you know even other kinds of uh, conflict spilling out to other kinds of areas in more diplomatic arenas as well uh, because you know it just is not in india's interest to dilute our relationship with the united states or with countries like japan and australia and other southeast asian countries simply to keep china in good humor so one of the presumptions in my paper is that india china relations are likely to become more tense in general uh, and the situation along the line of actual control is likely to become therefore more combative especially in the next 10 years and i say especially in the next 10 years because the in these 10 years the gap the actual gap between china and india will still be substantial uh, let us not forget that china has an economy six times ours in size and their military budget is at least five times what we spend uh, and therefore what we are going to see is a situation of armed coexistence which is here to stay and uh, pushing shoving and jostling along the line of actual control is one manifestation of that uh, that is however not the only manifestation what we are also uh, likely to see is the entry of the chinese navy and the chinese military more generally into the indian ocean region a situation that has not happened since the uh, beginning of the 16th century and uh, that is consequently going to lead to a certain amount of uh, pushing and shoveling and jostling uh, in the indian ocean region as well so we are going to have to deal with china both on our land frontier and in our maritime domain Uh, and therefore uh, we are going to face a fairly complicated situation and i think that uh, i would certainly think the government is aware of that uh, and uh, to a certain degree the whole indo pacific policy our approach in giving focus to our coastal and maritime regions uh, our efforts to build partnerships our developmental assistance to some of the littoral states close to us in the indian ocean region are all elements of a strategy to uh, deal with what is likely to be a much more assertive china both to our north and to our south right and at the same time you also say that india has to be prepared for you know more higher levels of risk management so to speak and and that you know some of these incidents uh, escalation control becomes important uh, i mean so far despite everything that has happened we still see that some of the older protocols which were built into the agreements of the 1990s which you referenced earlier seem to be holding in a sense that there has not been any use of firearms uh, and and you know fatalities have happened but they've not happened uh, you know because of use of military weapons so to speak uh, yeah. do you think these thresholds will be tested uh, i mean uh, given the sort of increasing points of friction etc as we go along uh, srinath i would say that the 1993 and 1996 agreements are holding but they are barely holding uh, essentially the spirit of the agreement was that there would be no face offs and that if face offs happened these would be resolved peacefully what we have been seeing in the last uh, few years is not only increasing face offs but face offs that have uh, resulted in physical combat now although weapons may not have been used if reports are to be believed that for instance uh, at the yangste face off on the 9th of december the retreating chinese forces fired weapons into the air then it is only a matter of time before those weapons are leveled at their adversary 
And therefore, I think the, these two agreements have outlived their use. And uh, if they are barely holding, I think it is it, it points to the good sense on both sides. However, that doesn't mean that we continue to depend simply on these. And for that reason, I mentioned we have to move uh, risk management from a tactical ground level to the political strategic level. And let me just uh, outline what I meant by that. Uh, firstly, I think we have to resume the political dialogue. Uh, as I wrote in my paper, two nuclear-armed neighbors and two of Asia's most populous countries and biggest economies cannot not speak to each other for 36 months. Let me be clear, I am not suggesting that uh, the, uh, the political dialogue should be at the heads of state or government. That is usually the end of the process. But I certainly think that the regular meetings between the foreign ministers and the national security advisors should resume. Because until that does, you cannot take the next step on risk management, which is to reiterate to the Chinese side that there are certain basic requirements for normal relations to prevail. Those being or those including that peace and tranquility must prevail along the line of actual control, that the trade imbalance is not sustainable and needs to be addressed, that stapled visas are not uh, a sign of friendly relations and need to be resolved, and so on and so forth. So I would certainly say a resumption of political dialogue in some form and an iteration of the requirements for normal relations are part of risk management. I would also say that we have to address the deficiencies in bilateral border management framework, not only in terms of reworking these two agreements, because the fact is that these agreements don't cover new areas like drones, for instance, or even tanks close to the border, right? So we need to rework these agreements. But in addition to that, we need to establish an effective hotline between the theater commands so that if a situation escalates, the higher level can quickly establish contact. And we also need to create a secure political channel if it comes to that. Uh, and thirdly, of course, uh, risk management also involves doing certain things domestically. Uh, the question is, uh, have we taken specific policy steps to reduce dependence on Chinese imports? Uh, because uh, as I saw from the newspapers, a statement uh, made by the Commerce Ministry in Parliament last week uh, indicated that the trade deficit had gone up last year to $73 billion dollars. And this year, in the first seven months itself, it has cost $50 billion. So what are the steps we are taking to uh, reduce our dependence? That's one thing. The other is what are the steps we are taking to enhance our capacity to deter the People's Liberation Army along the LAC? Uh, that too is part of risk management, because unless we have a robust force, you cannot really communicate a robust counter response when it comes to that. Uh, and the last element of risk management, of course, is the Indo-Pacific agenda, the building of strong partnerships, the focus on ties with the littoral states in the Indian Ocean region, uh, the, the building of a strong naval and coast guard force and so on. So that's essentially what I mean by saying we cannot depend on the border peace and tranquility agreements. We need to move to the broader risk management. Sure. Um, and do you think China recognizes that some of this might also be in China's interest, despite continuing friction with India and so on? I can't speak to that, Srinath, but what I can certainly surmise is that if 
uh, we were signaling to the Chinese side that we would not resume the political dialogue unless they disengaged on the border, then the Yangtze incident suggests to me that they are not buying that line. Uh, that uh, that despite uh, almost 36 months uh, after Galwan or uh, 20, 30 months after Galwan, they have tried another similar, similar incident. Uh, rather than disengaging, they seem to be re-engaging. So uh, we need to take this into account. We need to, uh, uh, I mean, mine is just an off-the-cuff assessment. I'm sure government has far more resources and information. But it really needs to think what is the message that the Yangtze incident is conveying, not only in terms of the LAC, but the larger relationship. That's right. And uh, hopefully, you know, given the range of diplomatic events that we are going to be involved in both countries, you know, the G20 being hosted by India, the Chinese, I think, are going to host a BRICS summit, or at least it's uh, slated at some point. Uh, so hopefully, space for diplomatic engagement will uh, increase. Uh, I'm sure the government would have liked you very much uh, within their sort of uh, camp as these things were moving on. But we are very happy that you are out of it to be able to give us this perspective, uh, which I think is quite unique. Uh, and uh, I, just before we sign off, I'd like to say once again to our viewers that uh, Ambassador Gokhale's work seems to me to be very important precisely because it is trying to understand China on its own terms, but from an Indian perspective. And I think that's been extremely rare. The three books that he has written, but also this article, uh, that he has written for Carnegie, I think are absolutely required reading. So those of you who are trying to make sense of what's happening now, uh, instead of just following every news update that comes, I think it'll be useful to get this framework first into our heads so that we are able to understand what exactly motivates China today. Ambassador Gokhale, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a delight to speak to you. Thank you, Shinnan. Thank you very much. We'll be back in January with a new season of Interpreting India. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and the team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.